Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona, filling in for Khalil Ecolona. You know the old children's rhyme about sticks and stones? Well, it's wrong. Words most certainly can hurt, and they can inspire other people to take threatening action. The deadly mass shooting in Buffalo is just the latest example. Ten people were killed while shopping for groceries. The suspect was an 18-year-old white man hyped up on racist ideas. Today, we're taking a look at the impact of fiery and hateful political rhetoric. We'll talk with someone whose own community was targeted right here in Middle Tennessee, and we'll discuss what can be done about it. But first, there's no easy way to get the news that your landlord plans to tear down your home. And when you're not making much money in a city where housing prices are skyrocketing, where do you go? That's the question for the former residents of East Nashville's River Chase Apartments, which was recently purchased by developers. WPLN reporter Ambriel Crutchfield has been digging into how people have navigated the process, and the first installment of her three-part series, Displaced, airs tomorrow morning here on WPLN News. Thanks for joining us, Ambriel. Thank you, Nina. Let's start off with a little context. Where is River Chase, and how is that area changing? Yes, yeah, so if you're sitting on I-20, Four, um, and your like downtown skyline is next to you to the left. Um, to your right is going to be, or to the east of the river is going to be the River Chase Apartments. They're colorful, so you maybe seen like the red, green, yellow buildings. Um, behind it is like Salvation Army. Maybe you've seen the Buffalo on that side of the east. Um, but the area is changing quite a bit. I mean, we've all been talking about what could happen with the Nissan Titan Stadium and its own facelift that it could get. Um, to the left of that is also like where Oracle is going to be in the East Bank development. So a lot of new developments going to come in and change that area. So how did you find this story specifically about these apartments? And how did you get started on that reporting? Yeah, so it's interesting. About a year ago, so late last summer, um, I was actually doing some reporting um, and looking into the Berkshire Place apartments in Inglewood, uh, which is in East Nashville as well, but deeper in. Um, and I was hearing a lot of similar things that I heard with River Chase. Um, I actually found out about River Chase because I was talking to the organizers with PATH and they were just telling me like, hey, like these apartments are deteriorated so bad that they need to be demolished. Um, and then they were like, you should come to this community meeting we're going to have that'll talk about what's going to come, but also like let residents know what's going to happen and, you know, some services that will be offered to them so they can transition smoothly. And when I went, I was able to talk to some residents and get a sense of things Um and I just heard so many similarities and things that we were talking about as a city, the problems we were having. Now, specifically, you talked with one River Chase resident, Sonia, who described some pretty terrible living conditions. Well, let's listen to what she described. But it's bad. You know, the maintenance, they, they couldn't keep a maintenance, man. They've had them. But so much is wrong with the apartments. I have where my tub is at. There's a big hole and stuff coming off the sheetrock coming off the wall you know i mean it's just don't get me wrong now there's other stuff wrong but like I, I was without a bathroom sink uh running water for a year and a half yeah i mean it's it, i just got a new front door when section eight was getting ready to inspect because the whole bottom was rusted out i got cats because i had so many mice and then they want to charge me a pet fee I wouldn't have gotten the cats if the mice, one night I caught 14 mice, I ended up going to bed because I was so tired. 
14 mice in one night. What other problems did you hear about? Yeah, and one thing I do want to know, when I was standing outside of Sonia's apartment, like if you looked up, you know, she lived on the bottom floor, but above her, I could see like the railing of where you walk over it. So it's very interesting that like that is just exposed and you could just see that in plain sight. But outside of that, you know, like she mentioned, crime is a really big thing. I know Freeman Webb, the current property management company, said that they really had to tailor a lot of their incoming process because crime was bad in the area. Um, I've heard of water leaks in living rooms, broken AC, um, even like problems with people's freezers going out, which of course impacts your ability to store food and all that food is wasted. Um, And one of the people you'll hear from, Virginia Holland, in her story tomorrow, she talks about how like her window would blow in if the wind is blowing too hard. Um, So it's a wide range of things. The interesting thing I will note is that in some apartment complexes, like apartment buildings, I would hear a bunch of problems they had. And then in others, it was like, everything's good. I don't have any of these problems. So it's very interesting. And we'll get to some of the other things, but Mm -hmm. specifically about the physical conditions. How did it get that bad? Yeah. So when I was talking to Freeman Webb, they actually started um, managing the property two years ago. And so we got MDHA inspection reports going back to 2016. Um, And from what they were saying is that it looked like a decade or at least 15 years of just deferred maintenance, like not doing the regular things you're supposed to do to the point where it gets so bad that you really have to like do major repairs of ceilings, et cetera. So when you mentioned that it's not just that physical condition, Mm -hmm. um, here's a bit of a conversation you had with another resident named Donna. They found a body in there and she was, all you could see was her her ribs. And stuff like that, but saw that with your own eyes. Yeah, they had they put the body, in, the bones in the bag, and came out the door with it. Yeah. Oh my uh, gosh. Yes, but what I'm, you know, it, it's been plenty of time that I am scared over there, because every time around they shooting, it's been plenty of time we don't stand on that porch and bullets are so close that that's how bad it really was over here. Oh, well, I would think everyone could agree something had to be done. But what's the solution the property owners came up with? Yeah, so the current property owners, they actually just purchased it, uh, the the property and the land at the end of last year. Um, so their plan is to move all the residents out. So right now, like residents are getting help with their deposits and move out fees, et cetera. Um, and then they're going to demolish the apartment complex because it's to the point where it can't be preserved. And it's really important to note that because as much as we talk about like needing affordable units and needing to create it, we also need to be preserving it. Um, and so this is an example of us losing something. But in, in this case, they're going to be bringing it back in a mixed use development. So there will be apartments um, and they will incorporate more affordable units than are currently at River Chase, which is nice. Um, and then it'll also be like retail space, green space, et cetera. Well, there are some aspects like, you know, they're creating more affordable units there that have been applauded and there have mm-hmm. been, you know, praise for plans to ease the transition for people who lived in River Chase. But how is that actually played out for the people who are, are moving out? Yeah, I think no one um, is ignoring that displacement, no matter how softly you do it, is going to disrupt you know, the community culture, et cetera. And also it's, um, you know, a lot of people there maybe rely on the bus or have family nearby that's supporting them. So that is, no one's like erasing that that's going to be a really negative impact. Um, Right now, the last day that people are supposed to be moving out is at the end of this month. So like 
what we're like in the last five days or so of May. Um, I was just talking to Path yesterday and they were saying we have some people that are waiting to hear back from apartments and can't move till June 15th. Uh, the developer has said that the current property owner has said that they're going to wait and make sure that people are able to be moved. But like they can't wait forever. So there is no set deadline of when that people are going to be forced out or what that's going to look like. So it's a very unsettling thing for people that are still trying to figure out where they're going. Yeah. So right now they're having to figure out where am I just going to be, you know, tomorrow mm-hmm. in, in order to have get out of this place because all these changes are happening. When they look long term, will those former residents be able to move back? into those new affordable units. Yeah, so they'll have two years to be able to decide if they want to return or not. Um, There's like a whole legacy resident program and some a a little bit of criteria that they're going to have to meet to be able to come back, Um, but they will be able to come back if they want to. But in most cases, it's important to note um, the housing expert I talked to said most people don't come back. Like right now, people are like, what am I going to do right now? Not in two or three years once this is done. What is the main thing that you're really hearing from from people, the, the emotion that they're expressing to you about kind of the situation that they're finding themselves in right now? A lot of frustration and anger um, and like people are feeling like overlooked. I mean, there are people that I've talked to and had conversations with um, that weren't open to being interviewed because like they're like, I'm stressing and trying to figure out where my family's going to go. And in some cases, you know, people have larger families than just the three of them like Virginia she has a seven person household she's like how am I going to find a three or four bedroom house if I've been looking for this since 2018 like how is this suddenly going to come available so it's a lot of frustration in general what's the next step the next step is um, right now the developer is negotiating with Stand Up Nashville to do a community benefits agreement the rezoning for the property which would be able to um, for them to be able to do deliver on what they want to do as a plan is delayed until after the city is done with the budget. Um, so right now we're kind of in a holding holding pattern of what is it going to look like for residents to find new houses? What's going to happen with that community benefits agreement? So your series begins tomorrow. You have been investigating this for, for quite a while. I know what can listeners expect to hear in the first episode? In the first one, you can expect to hear from Virginia about the one thing that she really enjoys about River Chase um, and then all the things that have kind of been failed as far as like not helping her be able to enjoy the space she's in. And and we will keep hearing from Virginia and the different ways that uh, housing has impacted her life. Um, She talks about in, in later things, she'll talk about how it's impacting her like ability to get a job and like provide these things for her family and her kids. So I think that, it's really important that first thing that you said. I mean, we it's so easy when you don't live there to look at a place that is clearly in bad physical condition and go, oh my goodness, that's you know awful. Something needs to be done. Something needs to be fixed. But people do find joy mm-hmm. and, and they find things that they enjoy in these communities and in these places. And people are having real lives mm-hmm. of importance in right. these places. What drives you to keep working on this investigation? Um, I mean, the people that I meet, they like, I think for me as someone that like is housing secure, um, it's so important to understand how housing literally is the basis for everything, like how Mm -hmm. you're able to get to work or have fun or anything you're able to do. So I think that's what I'm always trying to emphasize is that how much that shapes 
your options and what you think is possible is just like what's stable or not stable with your housing. But uh, I've met some really awesome people. Miss Donna, like I went and hung out with her niece, her and her grandkids. They go over there every weekend um, and they play volleyball together out front. So um, there is a lot of joy that they also have with each other and just like finding ways to have fun with whatever constraints are around them. Ambrell Crutchfield has produced a three-part investigation into how things got so bad for the people kicked out of the River Chase apartments. The first installment of the series, Displaced, airs tomorrow morning during a morning edition here on 90.3 WPLN News. Ambrell, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Nina. After the break, we'll talk about how the racist mass shooting in Buffalo is hitting home here in Nashville and Middle Tennessee. How has the tragedy resonated for you? When do you think speech turns dangerous? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Nina Cardona, and this is Nashville. Ten people were killed in a Buffalo grocery store earlier this month. The suspect wrote pages and pages of racist screed before he took action. That's how we know he was targeting black people based on the racist idea that white folks are being systematically replaced. It is an unfounded conspiracy theory, and it's showing up more and more in political discussion. The effects of the shooting have reverberated across the country, including here in Middle Tennessee, where the political climate is as charged as ever. A Southern Poverty Law Center report released in March said our state is home to nearly 30 active hate groups, more per capita than any neighboring state. That number is actually down from previous years. But for a disturbing reason, hate has become increasingly mainstream. What is the role of rhetoric from our elected leaders and others in creating or calming this kind of environment. To talk more about this, I'd like to bring in my first guests. Sophie Birk joins Joan, excuse me, Sophie Birk James is a professor at Vanderbilt University who studies white nationalism and the spread of hate speech online. And Dr. Saleh Spinati is a leader at the Islamic Center of Murfreesboro. Welcome to you both. Happy to be here. We reached out to Sonia Turner, executive director of Nashville Propel, a parents' educational advocacy group that focuses on supporting black and brown students. She wasn't able to join us live today, so we recorded a conversation with her yesterday. We asked her how the aftermath of the Buffalo shooting is resonating for her communities. I mean, they're sad. Um, they're sad things. And we often, we, we talk about color because it's important. It's one thing that we can't change. I mean, in politics, you can be Democrat, you can be Republic, but one thing we can't change is the color of our skin. And I think I think what we have to do is make sure that we're being very transparent and having these conversations. And the more that we subliminally try to hide um, behind rhetoric, the more harm it's going to, um, you know, cause. For children, uh, we just recently had a child um, who, uh, who had a parent in our organization whose child was called the N word. This is a fifth grader. Uh, so in the fifth grade, this little girl experienced her first uh, encounter with racism, and that's something you never forget. And you know, we're constantly reminded that there's 
so much progress that needs to be made. We're not out of the woods yet. And, you know, the more we ignore it, um, it, it gives it gives people opportunity and gives them uh, um, boldness, boldness uh, to be racist and to use um, rhetoric that is harmful. Not only the black and brown children, but when you think about it, children are innocent. So what are you talking about white children, right? Um, they shouldn't be subjected in their homes to those types of things, or in their schools, those types of things. So let's talk about the ripple effects. What are the effects when talk turns hateful? Saleh, I'd like to start with you. Your religious community has been the direct target of an array of hateful speech and actions. How did people react when you started to build a mosque in Murfreesboro? So let's let's take a moment here now, Sophie. What do you see in the current political conversation that's this fueling anger and violence? Yeah, unfortunately, it's a it's a very that's a vast problem. Um, my expertise is in studying the online white nationalist movement, which is a specific movement that has goals of furthering white supremacy. And they are have worked over the past 40 years to try to expand and make ex- expand their rhetoric to more people and make racist ideas more the norm. Um, you know, after the 1970s, there was, um, you know, after, you know, for kind of, conservative politicians could no longer win on a pro-segregation platform. There is a reconfiguration of the right where racism on the right became taboo. You couldn't express it openly. There was an, a, a wide efforts to, uh, if you were a conservative, to define yourself as non-racist. Um, the rate there has remained a, a racist movement since the, um, since the 1970s with the goal of recruiting more conservative white people into embracing their ideas. And what we've seen, especially over the last five years, is a radical expansion of very dangerous racist ideas into a broader conservative movement. And we're unfortunately seeing that that has consequences. Now, I'm understanding that, Salih, we do have you uh, all sorted out on terms of audio. We were taking kind of a more of a big picture look at, at the kind of uh, racist talk and that it continues even when people are wanting to not be called racist and, and finding ways to, to have the substance out there without sometimes always being so clear about the target. But your experience at the Islamic Center in Murfreesboro was very much of being that target, that clear target. What was that reaction when you started to build a mosque in Murfreesboro? Well, uh, thank you for having me, first of all, and sorry about uh, the technical problem. But um, in short, basically about uh, 12 years ago, when we st- when we got our permit to build our own center, uh, we were faced with a great deal of opposition that comes from a variety of directions. Um, from politicians who were running for Congress, from um, general public, from, you know, even school uh, administrators and things like that. Um, Luckily, we were in a great place because the whole community rallied behind uh, our cause. And they understood that, you know, the First Amendment is uh, for uh, everybody. And freedom of religion is not for particular group or particular religion. So, you know, we, we formed um, 
many many uh, coalitions with uh, local uh, churches synagogues and and so on and so forth but that did not uh, overcome the challenges that we faced our kids were called terrorists uh, our women were harassed in uh, grocery stores we were faced with bomb threat with shootings with arsons with lawsuits and you name it and um you know words matter and we have seen that you know there are you know some crazy people who you know they want to do um their work they they want to take action with their own hand and we have seen the shootings in um buffalo and then which copycat of el paso which another copycat of christ church mosque you know in which 51 people were killed and 40 injured and and the list goes on and on and um we need to address these frankly and openly and we need to discuss um extremism we need to discuss you know white nationalism and and so on and so forth now you talked about some of the the specific examples of people in your community, your life being made hard by when you're running into other individuals in the community and things that kind of feel like this grassroots angry mob of just kind of crazy people. But it wasn't just that. What kind of things were elected officials saying? Well, there are many who were running uh, for Congress, U.S. Congress at the time. Uh, Luan Zelnik in particular made a statement that um, Islam is not a religion, it's a political movement that is meant to fracture our community. Uh, Sharia law is going to creep and take over our constitution and so on. And um, there are many um, public officials that were elected actually, um, and you know they're now serving in office um, that made a similar statement or even more hurtful statements or even went further to uh, introduce legislations um, you know anti-sharia bill and and so on and so forth um, so what do you expect from the general public if our elected officials or uh, those who are running for U.S. Congress to make such statements. Um, there are people who were uh, misled. Uh, they're probably afraid. Uh, they don't know. And um, they may resort to violence. And that's what we have seen over and over. Now, you mentioned that shooting in Buffalo. Coming from your own experience, what went through your mind when you found out about that incident? You know, every time we hear something like this, you know, we go through uh, an emotional roller coaster. Um, it's 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 really hits very hard because we have been the subject uh, of such incidents. Now, when we go uh, to even pray, and that's you know, it should be the most peaceful time, uh, the most easy time. Uh, we have to have armed guards outside our facility, inside our facilities, uh, security cameras, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, what do you feel when you go to be with God and pray and be closer spiritu spiritually uh, to God while, you know, you're worried about, oh, is there someone going to break in or is someone going to um, have another incidence uh, on our facility? Um, it, it's it's uh, 
I, I cannot describe it in words when you are subject of fear. You know, I left my country 40 years ago. I was born and raised in Damascus, Syria, uh, because of my freedom. I want to feel uh, at peace. I want to feel the freedom. I want to feel, uh, uh, you know, everything America has to offer. And that yet um, we as community are subjected to these over and over and over again. It, it just, it just, it's sad to see that in the 21st century in the United States of America, which is a beacon for freedom and liberty. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm Nina Cardona, filling in for your host, Khalil Ekelona. How has the Buffalo shooting resonated for you? What do you think speech terms dangerous? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We're talking with Vanderbilt professor Sophie Buick James and Dr. Saleh Spinati from the Islamic Center of Murfreesboro about the impact of hateful rhetoric. You know, as always, after these sorts of things, certain pundits are quick to say that the Buffalo shooting suspect was just disturbed. He would have latched onto any convenient idea. Don't blame the politicians whose speeches fed into his racism. Sophie, what do you think of that argument? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's especially given that he wrote an entire manifesto explaining how he became radicalized and why he was motivated um, to enact violence. It's very, you know, it's, it's, it's absurd <laughs> to not acknowledge the context that fed him. I mean, he, he writes in his manifesto that he was bored <laughs> during the pandemic uh, and started spending more time on Reddit and 4chan, um, two different sites that have been um, like tar both targeted by white nationalists to try to recruit new people, new members. And, you know, he explains very clearly how he became radicalized into um, this uh, conspiracy, the replacement theory um, that proposes that you know people of color are um, trying being like brought into the United States to replace white people. It's a deeply anti-Semitic conspiracy, and that uh, in many people say that Jews are you know trying to recruit people of color into the United States and into Western Europe um, to replace white people. Uh, with ethnic others. Um, you know, the the shooter was very clear about this, that, you know, he was pretty apolitical. And through just spending time on the internet, he became indoctrinated into this conspiracy to the point where he decided to commit violence. Um, you know, that's very clear. I mean, I've studied, I've studied the online white nationalist movement for, you know, over 15 years. And as a researcher, you know, it's very disturbing because it's almost like I feel like I'm almost studying like landmines, like <laughs> recognizing that there's landmines in our infrastructure, in their uh, digital infrastructure that are going to go off at some point. Right. And, you know, that they get um, them, you know, when um, politicians, you know, in, uh, use similar racist language and framing, it draws more people to them. Um, and it makes them more likely to go off. Um, but I feel like, you know, as a society, we need to be committed to figuring out how to excavate and get rid of those landmines so that they're not creating, they're not radicalizing more people into enacting violence. So I, what is your reaction when you hear people try to argue something like, well, rhetoric is one thing, violence is another. So just don't conflate the two. What, how do you respond? Well, I mean, you know, this is this is typical of um, people claiming, you know, First Amendment and so on. But they need to understand that uh, their words um, can resonate with somebody 
who would go into the furthest uh, corner of the internet to be radicalized or to adopt ideas um, that you know violence is the way and we have seen it happen over and over and over um, you know people need to be responsible for their words as well as their actions so uh, we look at our politicians to give us hope and solutions and unfortunately nowadays uh, we have seen many politicians who um, want to deviate from real problems, real issues that we face as a society, and um, you know, talk about um, issues that um, may not affect us directly, and uh, deviate from uh, these real problems. So what they do, they find a scapegoat, and uh, whether minorities, whether immigrants, whether um, you name it, and uh, that you know, comes with a big price tags. And we have seen it over and over, which is basically violence against minority. When, you know, um, when officials started to call the coronavirus uh, the China uh, virus, basically, we have seen a spike in violence against Asians. Um, when we have seen, for example, our public officials talking about uh, whether Muslim bans and so on, we have seen spike against Muslims. So there is a direct correlation between what they say and the spike that we see in violence and in action against minorities. So uh, they cannot escape the fact. You know, if we were all in one room together, uh Sully, you would be seeing Sophie's head nodding yes in agreement with so much of what you say. Um, I have another question for you, Sully. How would you like to see the community respond when they come across a message that's fueled by anger and that pits groups against each other? Luckily, you know, we are in a very, very nice community. Um, the community, you know, the majority of the community rallied behind us. You know, we have been the subject of so many different things, uh, but one of the major um, and, and, you know, high profile case was the vandalization that occurred um, recently against our center. And, uh, you know, the next day we had over 450 people uh, come in for a vigil and they they brought basically cleaning supplies they cleaned the whole facility they do, donated money you know it, it's a beautiful things to see you know so we we go through these emotions when we are subject of an attack or vandalism and so on but the community as a whole rally behind us and they understand that you know we are as american as everybody else our children were born and raised here yet they are faced with so many challenges whether in school or uh in the public um, it's so good to hear that that some of what you want to see happening is happening dr saleh spinati from the islamic center of murfreesboro thank you so much for joining us my pleasure we have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get into some of the deeper causes of hateful acts of violence and tap into the debate over critical race theory. How has the Buffalo shooting resonated for you? When do you think speech turns dangerous? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back.
Nina Cardona, and this is Nashville. We're talking this hour about hateful rhetoric and its deadly consequences. Joining me now is Dr. Cesare Warren, a professor at Vanderbilt University who teaches critical race theory. Cesare, welcome to the show. Hope we have you there, Cesare. One place where people are really trying to exert control over speech lately is the public school classroom. In particular, critical race theory has become a lightning rod. Cesare, when we talk about lessons in elementary or middle school, does critical race theory actually come into play? Hi, uh, thank you for the invitation. And the quick answer is no. Okay. <laughs> not in the not in the ways that uh, those of us who studied it um, uh, at the graduate school level, the ways that we understand it and study it, no. So, so let's back up a little bit then. What is critical race theory? Uh, critical race theory is a set of intellectual perspectives um, that originate in critical legal studies where scholars are attempting to understand and isolate race as a heuristic or analytic for explaining various forms of social inequality. Why do you think it has been such a focus lately? I think that there are... I think Sophie sort of spoke to it a little earlier um, around just scare tactics and the ways that we use rhetorics to stoke fear um, and to get people riled up about an issue that at the end of the day, um, many folks are not reading and studying. You know, people will mention the language of critical race theory, race uh, in this country has historically always been sort of taboo. And so this was an opportunity to sort of spotlight a thing. But this is also, uh, you know, 30 years ago, a, a similar thing happened, you know, at, at Harvard with one of the originators of critical race theory. Um, and so I think it's just it's a thing that folks are using in the mainstream to um, draw attention and get people uh, motivated in the wrong direction. Sophie Bjork James is still with us. She is also a professor at Vanderbilt. She studies white nationalism and the spread of hate speech online. And Sophie, I'm interested in your perspective here. What do you think is fueling this focus on critical race theory? Yeah, it's such an important question. And, you know, we've a lot of it has already been covered, but I also think that, you know, we're at a very interesting cultural and demographic moment in the United States in that, you know, that it's, it's projected that by, you know, in the next 20 years, by 2042, white people will become a minority in the United States. Um, and I think that, you know, attending that is are just, you know, pretty radical transformations in terms of suddenly, you know, race is being talked about frequently, you know, when there's a racist incident that, you know, gets caught on video, it's on the nightly news, right? It's becomes there's social movements that take over, um, take over the streets to protest it. Uh, you know, there, there's, you know, there's, there's been times where I feel like I can't look at any corporate website without seeing an anti-racist statement, right? We're also seeing increasing number, um, representation of stories about people of color in the news, in TV shows, right? In movies. Um, and that, so there's a, a big transformation in, and I think there's two kind of dominant ways that people are addressing this. There's one is like a celebration that it's also a chance to actually, you know, meet the, the you know, original, um, you know, the dream of having a multiracial democracy, right? right? Of having, you know, recognizing that we've always been a diverse country and 
everyone, you know, should we we want to celebrate equality, right? Like that's one one response is kind of recognizing that we are actually can kind of meet the promise of of the United States in terms of achieving multiracial democracy that celebrates equality, right? Um, the other response, which I think we're seeing more and more in the conservative movement, um, is uh, is fear. A fear of a fear of cha- losing power and seeing this transformation as I think uh, honestly it's a crisis of imagination. I think a lot of, um, especially conservative white people, can only understand hierarchy, and so they think if if white people become the minority, then they will suddenly be subjected to the same forms of discrimination that people of color have been historically. So I think we need, you know, in some ways a a new narrative saying it's racism doesn't have to be, you know, the only way to structure a society, right? We can structure a society that celebrates diversity and equality um, and means that, you know, we can we can we can create a society where people don't have to be afraid to go to the grocery store or to pray, you know, because they've been targeted. Right. And like that should. And I feel like that's a really important value um, that we should be talking about more. Just right. Does it seem like critical race theory has just come to mean talking about race at all? I think more than anything, when we think about the legislation, um, much of it hinges on um, white fragilities and emotionalities around talking about race in particular, not wanting people to feel uncomfortable or not wanting to be positioned uh, as the as the oppressor or as a colonizer. Um, And really what that I think sort of covers up is you don't want us to tell the truth about history and what history does for sobering our understanding of the present. And to Sophie's point, um, positioning us to imagine a future that is good for all of us. And I think what's particularly dangerous about um, this sort of posturing and rhetoric of uh, banning CRT is that folks will go to any length, including um, in state and in, in state houses, to maintain the positions of privilege and authority, which include being able to operate uh, with a level of ignorance around the ways that you may be participating in or complicit in somebody else's oppression or experiences of oppression. Um, and so what folks, you know, in social justice movements want to do is raise awareness in part because when we're more aware, we can make different decisions. You can't make a different decision if you don't have the knowledge. And I think what these bands are doing is attempting to minimize and revise the knowledge, i.e. the history, such that people feel no obligation to be different and or to, to give up or concede uh, aspects of their um, experience in the world that would make them more uncomfortable or have less privilege of power. So let's get real clear here, Chesra. When this happens and when those kind of white fears take hold, which groups are protected and who is left to fend for themselves? I mean, privilege and power... Um, comes across multiple axes, right? Uh, right? If you're really wealthy, regardless of race, that's powerful. If you are able-bodied or English-speaking as a, as, a, as a first language, those are forms of power. I think, though, race mediates all of those other identities. And so we can say if you're white, cisgender, male, wealthy, you sit at the apex of power in this country, and these sort of bands most protect folks who wear those, the... Um, uh, sort of the coalescing of multiple privileged identities, right? Um, and then 
to but to maintain such identities then you need to not care as much about black people or about uh, Muslim people or about gay people. I mean, we can't we can't concede too much power to these groups because that means that as a white man, a wealthy white man who's only known privilege in this country, that means I have less access to opportunity. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm Nina Cardona, filling in for your host, Khalil Ecolona. In the wake of the racist mass shooting in Buffalo, we're talking this hour about how hateful ideas spread. We've got a tweet from Jeans Ryan who says, speech is not protected when it is inciting violence. But questions how exactly that's enforced. Like, is that really the case? Chesare, your thoughts? Can speech incite violence? This person says speech is not protected when it is inciting violence, but questions how that can be enforced. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really it's really tough. I think we've been having lots of conversations, at least on university campuses in the last five years around the the topic of free speech. And my stance is simply this. Everyone gets to believe whatever you want to believe. You don't get to create an environment that will sustain uh forms of violence and that that is physical all the way ranging to more symbolic forms of violence making me feel unwelcome that that i don't belong uh you don't get to do that and you don't get to do that with your words or with any other means and so i think that that's the that's the that's the tension uh because that's the argument that gets made i think by folks in the alt right i think sophie can uh probably this is her, her area but i would imagine part of the argument is uh, you're you're not allowing me to speak freely when I say white people should be superior, uh, but that has a violent connotation and a violent history, which is what we always sort of leave out of the conversation. These movements by the alt right, violence always accompanies these movements, and that's that's the thing that we kind of have to reckon with. Sophie, I'd like to give a few examples of public rhetoric and ask you if you think this crosses a line into dangerous territory. So in 2019, here in Tennessee, Coffee County District Attorney Craig Northcott posted on social media that Islam is, and these are his words, quote, evil, violent, and against God's truth. Yeah, I mean, that's very, like part of a very long tradition of anti-Islamic racism in this country that misrepresents, I mean, it caricaturizes, you know, a, one of the, you know, most popular religions in the world, um, is a very in a very negative way and can lead to yeah all kinds of all uh, you know all kinds of stereotypes and potentially violence and harassment. It's dangerous. Uh, Cesare, wondering what your thoughts are here. Uh, we have a sound from Tennessee Congressman Marsha Blackburn who appeared on Fox and Friends in 2018. We should be careful. There's a right way and a wrong way to come to the United States, and this is the wrong way. You don't come as an invading force, and that is what we are seeing with this caravan. Cesare? Uh, I mean, it, it's, it, it just sounds so fantastical to me. As an invading force, I mean, I think that that's, again, a part of the... Um, the tactic. I mean, create really big, out of the world sort of narratives that um, create images in people's minds that make them feel like they are going to be erased. And I think part of 
part of that is almost a silent fear that people of color will do to white people what white people have historically done to people of color. Uh, but the history does not bear that in terms of what justice movements in this country have looked like and what uh, immigrants have brought to this country. It just doesn't bear uh, truth to that sort of statement. All right, we've got another one of these. Sophie, we're wondering if this is tough talk or something more. This is from 2019. Texas Governor Greg Abbott sent a fundraising email stating that for Republicans to defend Texas from illegal immigration, quote, we'll need to take matters into our own hands. Now, this was the day before a white 21-year-old man opened fire in El Paso, killing 22. The suspect's manifesto contained references to a Hispanic invasion of Texas. So, you know, that does raise that talk about question about the tough talk from politicians. Is it tough or is it dangerous? It's I mean, it's 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 very dangerous in that whenever you turn a complex group of people into a caricature, a stereotype, you know, into, you know, an invading force, right, then you they lose their humanity. And when someone loses their humanity, they could easily become a threat. And importantly, if you enact violence on them, then you are engaging in self-defense. And this is a theme that we see across the board with these racist manifestos of mass shooters, right? The, you know, and people like, um, you know, are going in and like, in you know, shooting people in their in their churches, in their synagogues, right? In grocery shopping, right? These are people going about their day. But in the shooter's mind, they are um, potentially evil. They are dangerous. And the shooter themselves is engaging in self-defense and a heroic act, right? That is, you know, you don't get there without the stereotypes and without the dehumanizing rhetoric. Uh, and so it is very dangerous. And, I mean, especially when we think about, like, who are the people, like, trying to cross the border in the, to the United States? They're people fleeing, they're um, refugees. They're fleeing, often fleeing violence. You know, they're fleeing economic poverty. They're fl- fleeing climate disasters. And to loot, like, it's what I, I also want to say, like, you know, that it's dangerous rhetoric, but also what do we lose if politicians are in, so incapable of recognizing the humanity of these people, right? Who are, you know, you know, what does it take to flee your country without, you know, a, um, a lifeboat, right? right. Um, and and so I think we lose a lot too in terms of like dehumanizing entire groups of people, right? They become more more prone to being targeted um, and subject to violence. But I also think for people who are doing the dehumanizing, like that is also you know that's a moral wrong that is done um, that I think is also important to recognize. We know that some of these ideas just spread like wildfire on social media where, you know, the algorithms just reward anything that gets attention with giving it more eyes. Sophie, is there anything that social media and tech companies can do to tamp down on the hate speech online? There's so much that they can do. And, you know, unfortunately, it's not going to come from Congress, I don't think. You know, Congress is decades behind in terms of regulating social media sites and tech companies. They're just decades behind. And so I think the most successful efforts have really come from either um, campaigns to um, deplatform really radical and dangerous um, websites, often through uh, targeting the tech companies that allow those sites to be visible. Um, and to gain, you know, um, viewership. 
And there's some been really um, good successes there. And then with social media, you know, social media, there's a reason why we all spend so much time on social media. It's because they have figured out, as you mentioned, algorithms to attract our interest, right? And so the same reason why I may spend more time on Facebook watching videos of dogs that are saved, right, from 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 starvation or abandonment, right? It's this the exact same algorithms end up leading can lead lead people um, into very radical and anti-democratic ideas, um, and so. Social media companies have figured out how to um, get our interest so they can also figure out and put in, if they put in the energy and the time and the resources, how to stop hate speech from spreading. Right. You know, and I think to Cesare's point, if someone, you know, says something racist on the Internet but doesn't have an audience, it's not that dangerous. In our last 30 seconds, Cesare, what about freedom of expression? How do we balance that in your view? I don't know that the, there's an easy answer um, to that. I really appreciate um, Sophie's point about um, when you essentialize groups, you dehumanize them. When we forget that people, all people have their feelings and um, desire and passion and virtue, uh, we hopefully in that way can start to build some bridges Um so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that as we have more of these conversations in the public sphere, that folks become more aware uh, and we can have more conversation. That's Dr. Cesare Warren and Sophie Bork-James from Vanderbilt University. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me here. Thank we you. want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. I'll be back tomorrow filling in for your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're spending the hour with family members who have lost their loved ones to police killings. We'll hear what that experience has been like for them and what resources they wish they had. Don't miss it. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Larange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Dr. Ebony McGee and Vicia Hawkins. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Nina Cardona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.